Hello again, everybody. Welcome to the Mainland Podcast. I am uh, Michael Citro, and this is episode 12. And, uh, of course, we uh, represent the Mainland.com, SB Nation's Orlando City SC website. Joining me, the ubiquitous Andrew Marcinko. Andrew, how is it going tonight? Michael, it's going well. How are you? Going really well. We uh, we have a good show tonight. We've got some good guests, and um, yeah, we do. Really excited about this, and we've got a couple of games to to cover. We didn't have a podcast last week. That's my fault because I got sick, and uh, I was not up to doing the podcast last week. But um, we're going to double it up this week he's, and uh, give you give you twice the guests that we normally give you. Michael so. Michael's the only one that knows the technology, so if he's done the whole <laughs> the whole process just goes to crap. I'm just I'm just the on-air apart. talent. That's all I do. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, sometimes you just gotta know your role. Right. And you know, my role is just the the behind the scenes crap, and you guys are the face of the organization. So there you go, um, Andrew. So let's start off by talking about Toronto FC. We really don't want to talk about it so much, but we kind of have to because we haven't done that yet. Um, Orlando, once again, a dominating percentage of possession uh, as they had had in previous games, but this time out, not the dominating performance that we've seen in the past. The Toronto game was was largely a matter of Toronto parking nine or ten guys behind the ball, letting Orlando sort of uh, fall into their traps, and then counterattacking with Josie Altidore, and uh, they got a couple of goals and uh, put the thing away. Uh, what were your impressions overall of the team's performance? Well, you're killing me here, Michael, because it's been just long enough I've started to forget that performance, and now we're, <laughs> we're rehashing it again. Obviously, it was tough and, and a, tough, uh, a couple tough weeks there for Orlando City with the losses. And I think you said it. Toronto was content to keep nine men behind the ball for a lot of that game, um, which might have been a little surprising, but they were on the road, so it shouldn't have been a complete shock. And then more or less, Josie Altidore just outskilled one-on-one. Uh, unfortunately, it was Seb Hines who sort of got victimized both times, but he was just better on offense than the guy trying to guard him was on defense. And, you know, that's why Toronto pays the big money for a guy like Josie Altidore. And frankly, I, I bet there are a few Orlando City fans that wish we had a striker like that uh, so far this season as well. Yeah, and, you know, that's a perfect example. Toronto just showed us a perfect example of what a veteran striker is capable of. Now, Orlando City's been forced to go to Plan B with their veteran, Martin Patterson, on the shelf with a hamstring injury. Uh, so they've been having to use young guys that were supposed to come in and learn from Martin Patterson and, and, and even, you know, a more experienced guy like uh, Pedro Ribeiro, who's also hurt. Um, but uh, Josie he got the better of Seb. Uh, not completely Seb's fault because he he was put in a bad spot by uh, what number the first goal he was put in a bad spot by a couple of teammates and the second goal put in a bad spot by an incredible long ball yeah. that fell perfectly um, so it's it's tough to fault number three uh, on Orlando City but um, he's the guy showing up in the highlight film yeah well and, Josie you know, world, world class players do that too and yeah you know Josie had a rough go in the EPL but he's still a world class player. I don't know if people would seen uh, uh, yesterday with uh, was it was it Boateng and Messi. Um, I don't know if you've seen that highlight yet, but just got it was like an and one mixtape crossover on uh, Messi's move <laughs> to the goal and just left him. I think the hashtag was rest in peace Boateng or something on the uh, on Twitter. So you know, world class players tend to do that to defenders once in a while. They do, and uh, so the first goal obviously. The quick restart should not have been a surprise. Toronto had already done one earlier in the game and almost scored on it. Uh, they go quick. 
Amobi Okugo, who's a, a veteran player and a, and a very good player, was stepping past Josie out the door to say something to the referee. And Josie puts the ball down, uh, passes off to Joe Vinko, gets it back, takes a couple of dribbles. Darwin Saren had a chance to foul him outside the box and take a yellow and passed it up. And then he beats Seb and gets the goal. Um, Darwin maybe could have done a little more there. He, and Darwin did get a yellow later in the game, but uh, uh, in that particular instance, maybe a yellow was warranted to, to protect a back line. Um, as a you know, someone's played soccer yourself. What are your thoughts on taking that intentional tactical foul there? Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote this after the game as well. There was a lot of blame to go around in that goal, and that that was where Seb really got put in a bad place. And I think uh, I think Amobi would be the first one to tell you that he needed to do better to stop that quick kick. Um, that's a pretty straightforward you know move in soccer. You stand over the ball on those free kicks to give your defense time to get set, and he just he didn't wasn't didn't do that effectively on that case. And I think he probably agree with that. And then, yeah, I also look at Saren, that, that might have been one of those times where you realize, recognize the danger and take that, you know, professional foul. Uh, yeah, probably would have got a yellow, but in retrospect, a yellow would have been a lot better than a goal there. So a lot of blame to go around on that one. Seb got put in a really bad place one-on-one and uh, obviously only the city paid for it. Yep. And um, so they get the one goal lead and they're already parking the bus a little bit. It, it made things a little bit tougher. Adrian Heath went to the bench to try to get some offense. First time we've uh, seen all three designated players on the field at the same time for Orlando City. Rochez came on and Rivas came on. And, and Rochez and Rivas each had a really good scoring chance late in that game and both horribly scuffed their chance. Um, so that was a little bit disappointing. But they, again, are young players. They're pressing. Um, by that time, it was 2-0. And uh, it's hard to hard to fault them. Um so let's turn our attention a little bit towards uh, the friendly Saturday night. A lot of people didn't see it. It was only televised locally. It wasn't streamed at all. Um, Ponta Preta is a, a Serie A team in Brazil, top flight. They just got promoted last year for finishing second in Serie A Bay. Um, they come in, and they got the first goal on a set piece, and um, they they took the one nothing lead, and then... As luck would have it, they got a penalty kick. Uh, Earl Edwards Jr., a little indecisive coming out of goal. Uh, maybe a little bit of a soft penalty. The the player certainly was looking for the, the contact, dragged his leg. Uh, but the ref from his position had to call that. Uh, and then Edwards made up for it by stopping the penalty. And it seemed to spark the team. And even sparking the team even more was Brian Rochez's header goal off a corner uh, at the death of the first half. Uh, so it was 1-1 going to the second half. Orlando City actually took a lead in the second half on another corner. Luke Bowden uh, crossing it in and uh, Sean St. Ledger getting on the end of that, making it 2-1. Um, another set piece gave, uh, you know, made the game level just about four minutes after that. Uh, Kaja, Renato Kaja from uh, Ponte Preto with a really, really nice uh, free kick, well taken. Yeah. And then uh, late in the game, Ball goes forward. Kyle Laren gets on his horse, outraces the defense, forces Pablo to take uh, a foul in the box. And then Laren steps up, buries the penalty, and it was basically the last play of the game. And Orlando City wins it 3-2. What were your – you got a little bit different vantage point for that game because you actually watched it in the stands. What were your thoughts on that game? Yeah, and I, and I had a beer or two as well, so my thoughts are even more more <laughs> colorful on it. It was nice to be uh, take a little break from the the press duties every other week. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, great match. I think this was sort of the excitement that Orlando fans have been hoping, praying, wishing for for the, the first uh, eight matches of the MLS season. There were goals, there was tie, back and forth, lead changes. Um, I think everyone's wondering where those three home goals have been in all the MLS games. But one of my big takeaways was the two set-piece goals from the, the corner kicks. I think one was in a, a, a Avila corner kick, and then Luke Bode, uh-huh. Luke Bode in the second half to St. Ledger. I don't think we've scored, well, I, I guess Kaká's free kick set-piece, but we haven't scored off a header off a corner set-piece like that this season, I don't believe. And um, that's something that's been missing from our game. Obviously, the goal scoring has been missing to some extent in total. But with guys like Seth Hines and Aurelian Collins have been on the field all season, and Kyle Laren's a big boy up top, Rex Shea's tall as well, you really would have thought we would have scored or at least contested a few more corners yet. So it was exciting and interesting to see them get a few of those in the net, and I hope that that carries over here into the next few MLS games. Yeah, the free headers uh, have been there on the corners, but we haven't put them in. Akugo's missed wide, I think, four times this year, and, and Collins put a few over the bar. Uh, I tell you, Avila and Bowden both put in balls that you couldn't help but put them in the net. They really whipped those balls in there. Yeah. Uh, they were really well-taken corners, and I'm not saying they maybe should be taking them instead of Kaká, but Kaká gives you another pretty tall dude to put in the box as well. So if you have Bowden taking them and, and uh, Kaká in the middle... It gives you an extra chance to to score uh, on those set pieces. The the other two main talking points for that uh, friendly win, obviously the Kevin Molino injury. Uh, you hate to see that. Uh, you never, ever want to see a player get hurt, uh, especially in a friendly. And, and the play of Breck Shea, the other big talking point. We'll get to that in a minute. First, let's talk about Molino. A lot of people coming out saying, oh, it was a stupid friendly. We should have never had a midseason friendly. This was dumb. And Kevin Molino's hurt now, uh, but Adrian Heath pointed out correctly: you got to have games like this to 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 teach your young team to play together. And it's not like Orlando City didn't have in-season friendlies when they were in USL. Um, right. Injuries can happen anytime. It's unfortunate Kevin Molino got hurt. Um, what's your take on that whole situation about having a friendly in the middle of the season? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's what teams do. Every team in MLS has friendlies. Most teams around the world have. Friendlies. There, there are actually more different league games in, in some of the European leagues, whether it's the in England the FA Cup or you know Europa or Champions League or all these different things. So teams mm-hmm. play a lot of games. It happens. I'm I'm surprised we haven't heard more uh, uh, outcry from the turf people yet. I, I haven't really heard too many people upset about that. And normally mm-hmm. when you see normally when you see injuries on turf, you get the the vocal crowd of people that say, "Oh, that's you shouldn't be playing soccer on turf." You can never really say for sure whether it was a cause of it or not, but. Uh, Really, I, I think a lot of people have said it's just an unfortunate aspect of the game. It's unavoidable, and we just hope that uh, he can come back stronger next season. Yeah, and, you know, this there was a, a very vocal minority of people who think that because Kevin Molino wasn't scoring goals that he wasn't playing well. And, you know, if you saw the way he was linking up with Kaká, the way he set up Kyle Laren's goal, you can't really say that Kevin Molino wasn't contributing mm-hmm. Uh, to the club. He actually was uh, one of the better players on the pitch most of the games that he played. So uh, it's, it is a tough loss. Kaká's you know, preferred uh, attack partner uh, is now out, um, which leads us to what is Orlando City going to do? And it looks like we're moving Breck Shea up to left wing, and Luke Bowden will play the left back position. 
uh, which is kind of dicey because your two left backs are on the field at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't afford to have one of them go down or get a red card. Um, and if you saw the way Breck Shea played in that friendly, it's got to make you feel pretty good. He was basically all over the place and a threat everywhere on the pitch, wouldn't you say? Yeah, he he played well, um, and and you can't really hate this move. It's one of those things where I guess well the the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak. If if he plays really well, if we score some goals with him in there, uh, it'll look like a genius move. Um, something I, I I've been sort of meaning to write about and and, and thinking is the person the one person that this move doesn't make any sense for to me is Breck Shea. He's all of a sudden found his way back into the national team starting picture. As far as I can tell, he's the starting left back on the U.S. national team right now. Um, and was likely to start there. It's been a, a, a renaissance in his career, which sort of sputtered over the last year and a half in England when he really didn't play any position for anyone for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. To me, he seems to have an incredibly bright future at left back. So I, I'm not sure I can speak to whether it's the right move for Orlando City as a team right now or not. But my question is, if I were Breck Shea, I would be insisting to stay at left back because that seems like where his uh, brightest future is as a player. Well, I think Breck, he certainly said all the right things. He certainly said that he would play, you know, he'd play goalkeeper if that's where Adrian Heath wanted to play him. Um, he's shown that he can do that, obviously, this year right. <laughs> uh, with a save of the week. Yeah, sure. um, the thing about Breck is I, th- I think he really honestly would probably rather be in an attacking role, yeah, but he's he's fine either way. Uh, in fact, Soccer by Ives has, has their quarter of the season all-MLS club uh, come out today, and Breck Shea was their all-MLS uh, left back. So right. that tells you how well that people are perceiving him as, as having played and he has played very well. Uh, but the vocal, again, the vocal uh, longtime Lions fans are going to get their wish to see Luke Bowden play regularly. And, you know, there's, there's some concern, at least I have some concern that maybe he was on the bench for a reason. And maybe part of that reason was that Breck Shea was playing very well in that spot, but maybe part of the reason is is pace. I mean, he he certainly did get um, a little bit abused by uh, Dominic Aduro, but Aduro's got uncommon speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this New England team coming up on Friday has a wealth of attacking players that can attack you in a number of ways. So it, he's going to be put to the test right away, isn't he? Yes, yeah, they're they're. Couldn't be a worse team um, to square off against in your first match or, I guess, second match starting as left back. His second ever appearance, I think, in, in MLS, if I'm recalling that stat correctly. So couldn't be a worse team. He's going to be he's going to have uh, Teal Bunbury on his side. He's sort of a converted striker. He has some caps with the U.S. national team. Uh, big guy, more of a striker than a winger. So he's going to go at you physically. Um, almost has a target striker build. He'll also be dealing with uh, uh, Charlie Davies up top, who, again, U.S. national team caps, and Louis, uh, Louis Lee Nguyen, whose name I can't pronounce right now, uh, <laughs> playing their sort of number 10 role. Again, U.S. national caps. And then Juan Agudelo is on the other side. So four guys who've all been capped by the U.S. national team, all young, all very, very good. Um, not going to be a pleasant experience for anyone trying to be on the back line there. And that's the reason. I mean, New England is the hottest team in MLS right now, you could argue. Mm-hmm. Haven't lost in their last seven matches. So going to be a tough match for everyone involved, but particularly uh, Luke Bowden and the rest of the back line. And they'll have Jermaine Jones bombing forward from the, the deep midfield position as well. So um, he's kind of got uh, free reign to get forward whenever he wants. So it, it's they do pose a lot of a lot of problems. The 
the both of their fullbacks are very good at getting up the sides and, and putting in excellent crosses. Uh, it's going to be a big test for Orlando City. And we're going to talk more about that with, uh, with our first guest. Uh, we'll bring him on in a second. Uh, just to sort of wrap this up, though, uh, we will get Rafael Ramos back in the lineup for MLS. Uh, he sat out the Toronto game, which which may have contributed to Orlando sort of playing into Toronto's hands and going up the middle mm-hmm. rather than using the, the width of the field. Right. Uh, Turner, uh, early in the game, Tyler Turner had, had some really bad crosses. Mm-hmm. And after that, Toronto noticeably locked down Kevin Molino and left uh, Tyler Turner to his own devices out there. Um, so I think that was a, a, a key in that match as well. Uh, but we will have Ramos back, and he'll be bombing up the right side. His problem for Ramos now, he's got to get used to playing with a new attack partner uh, down the right as well. So uh, it'll be interesting. But uh, without further ado, let's uh, start uh, bringing in our guests, our cavalcade of stars, and uh, get this party uh, amped up even more. All right, our first guest tonight on the Mainland Podcast, well, it might not be night when you listen to it, I don't know why I said that, this is not a live show, uh, is Steve Storr, he's the managing editor from the Bent Musket. Steve, thanks for being on the Mainland Podcast with us. Thanks for having me. So, the first thing I want to find out is, you know, are you guys just like recreating the U.S. men's national team up there, is that what the plan is? Because... You got all these guys that are capped. Plus, you got this. Uh, now you got a youth international coming in to uh, to uh, be a trialist with the club. Is it just going to be like USMNT Northeast? Well, I feel like that's not necessarily a bad way to go about it. Um, <laughs> definitely pulling in some talent. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's uh, it's been a focus of the club to try to build slowly, build solid, and build uh, domestic talent. Um, they've never really been a club that's gone out and splashed on international signings. And, uh, you know, while that was frustrating when they weren't playing well a few years ago, I think it's really starting to work out now. And you get, you get, you get really good team chemistry uh, with the way that they've been doing things. So they've never, they don't have their own caca, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I just, you're not likely to see that happening in, uh, in, uh, in New England, getting caca in here, although... I'm sure the Brazilians up here would go crazy if that did. Um, but it's it's Jermaine Jones was kind of like the caca of the New England philosophy, I guess you could say, because okay. he is, you know, he's the big he's the big um, American kind of DP that we have in here. But he's still a U.S. national team player. He's an American player. He kind of fits that ethos um, and really drives the team forward that way. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's it's kind of cool. I mean, even I don't know if you were going to touch on this, but Will Packwood is even from Concord, Massachusetts. Oh. Uh, I don't know yeah. if there's I don't know if there's another, and he's not obviously hasn't signed with the team, and there's no guarantee that he will. Um, but he is coming in on trial. It's been confirmed by the club. He's coming in next week. Oh, cool. Um, so it's it's not only are they building an American team, they're building a very very New England heavy team, uh, which is which I think is in our in this league the potential for that in this league is is, is vast, and not many clubs have taken advantage. And I like the fact that the Rebs are doing that. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about Packwood. I saw the story on your uh, on your trial. He's a, a good player who just uh, didn't get his contract renewed by. Gosh, who was he with out there in England again? Sorry, did you repeat that? Who who is uh, Packwood with out there in England? It slipped my mind which club he was with. He was with Birmingham City. Okay, yeah, and just didn't have his contract renewed there, so apparently coming to trial with yeah, the new yeah. exhibit. He, uh, he, I guess, was he. From what I've been able to understand, just from reading around some of the stories that have been swirling his 
recent travails, uh, he uh, he was basically set on loan to Cheltenham Town in the conference premier and was basically playing for a new contract. Then, in Birmingham since 2007, when he was 14 years old, um, he uh, his father's English, so he was able to just go over and join the um, join the academy. And he, you know, played got some good first team minutes there. He went on uh, loan to a couple teams in League One and League Two. Played well everywhere he's gone. He's just had injuries. Uh, you know, broke his leg pretty gruesomely in 2013. He's had some groin mm-hmm. issues. Um, and I guess, you know, he there was no guarantee that Birmingham's going to take him back or going to renew his contract. He was probably going to be on a free anyway. Excuse me. So he decided, he went to the club and said, you know, I had this opportunity to play, possibly play in America, go back home. He let me out of my contract early. Uh, and they the contract was scheduled to end at the end of next month, and they terminated it for him the other day. So he could come back and get on trial and get signed before the May 12th deadline. So, um, given the fact, and I, this is my speculation, given the fact that he uh, he's due to start training with the team next week, uh, and you could assume that's probably Monday, and the window closes end of the day Tuesday, i got to figure the refs have a pretty good idea of what they want to do here, because two days doesn't sound like much of a trial. Um, but that's just, I'm spitballing on that one, but it kind of mm-hmm. makes logical sense, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's turn our attention to the guys that are already there. It, here's what I've learned from all these U.S. men's national team guys coming back and playing in MLS, is that they're going to ruin the USMNT for me because I'm starting to hate some of these guys. Um, Josie Altador scored two goals against us in the last MLS game. Uh, Michael Bradley was breaking up everything in the midfield. And I don't want to hate these guys, but I understand from watching Jermaine Jones that he's the kind of guy that if he's on your team, you're going to love him. If he's not on your team, you're going to hate him pretty bad. Tell us a little bit about Jermaine Jones and what he's brought to this team because the team really picked up a little bit of swag last year when they when they got him. Oh, you're, you're going to hate him. You're, you're going to absolutely hate him. He's going to be your least favorite player uh, <laughs> when he's playing against you. It's just the way that he is. Uh, he brought what he brought to the team. It was the, the hallmark of the Revolution teams that had been playing under the heaps were that they were flashy. They had great attacking um, instincts. They pressed hard. But if you got them down early and you kind of punched them in the mouth, they weren't. They usually didn't have much of a response. Um, they lacked a little bit of concentration, a little bit of mental toughness, and uh, I think I don't think that's a commentary necessarily on Jay Heath as a coach. I think maybe that's more of a commentary on his experience. But it, it was it was also a commentary on the youth of the squad. I mean, it's a young team. Jermaine comes in all his Bundesliga experience, all this big game experience. He's a competitor. He's fiery. He's emotional. So he matches the team in that regard. But he also knows that when you go down early, it's not over, that when you hit adversity, there's ways to overcome it. Uh, And that was, I think, the biggest change in the team last year when they went on that giant run at the end and went all the way to MLS Cup Finals, that they would play poorly in the first half or they would go down and it just didn't seem to shake them. Whereas earlier in the season, you know, when they were in that 10-game winless run or in previous seasons, if you got ahead of them early, they rarely came back. They were rarely able to pull themselves out of that hole. Uh, and that is, I mean, more than his te- his ability on the ball and what he does in midfield, Jermaine bringing that to the team was probably the most crucial thing. Um, then there's also, of course, the fact that, you know, he's got a tireless engine. He is not afraid of challenges. He's smart. He's, got a, he's a good passer of the ball. He's pretty good in the tackle. Um, and he can finish when he gets the chance. Um, so he's a leader on the field. That's probably the best thing. But, I mean, he's also, you know, clearly the best midfielder in the team as well. So if it, I were... It, 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 
if I were Kaká, I would probably uh, watch my ankles if uh, Jermaine Jones is uh, around the ball. Because Jones has a history of kind of, he's not afraid to get physical with the other team's stars sometimes. So, Yeah, no, he's definitely not. Um, I, he, uh, most of the time when I feel like when he gets, gets tackles in that look a little rough, um, he's just late. Uh, I don't think he's a dirty player, per se. Um, I don't think he goes in for the rough challenge for necessarily for fun, but he is not afraid to mix it up. And if you're a skilled player and you get the better of him, there's a real good chance he's just going to make sure the next time you don't. You know, right. and, and if that means leaving a little extra in, it might happen. But, I mean, we look at Kaká. Kaká's been playing with and against players like that for, you know, a decade and a half now. I'm pretty sure he's he knows what to expect. And, I mean, with Jermaine, it's more uh, – he Jermaine's – the biggest thing with Jermaine that, that he does for this team, for, for the Revs, is what he does when he has the ball. Um, so, I mean, the hard tackles, frankly, can come from anybody <laughs> in the Revs team. <laughs> there's, there's no shortage of guys in the Revs team who aren't afraid to come in a little late if they're a little upset about something. So, um, yeah, Jermaine Jones probably be on Kaka. Kaka should probably watch himself a little bit, but I wouldn't only watch Jermaine Jones in that regard. Well, talk about, talk about to, to mention a couple of your other attacking threats, Talk about your, your two wings, uh, your Teal Bunbury and your Juan Agudelo. Both players have sort of played striker when they were younger, um, but your coach Jay Heath has them moved out to the wings in a supporting role. Talk about how they've adapted to that and what they bring to the New England attack. Well, with those two, it's two different. It's definitely two different stories. Um, Teal Bunbury is a winger now. I mean, he jumped into that role. He had a rough go of it early last year. Um, early last season, he wasn't playing well. He was muffing chances left and right. His touch was failing him. Um, he did not play well up top. Uh, he got moved up to the wing, and it almost seemed like he decided to take it in steps. He started working on the defensive side of the game, and all of a sudden, he was this incredible, you know, tenacious track-back defender on wing. He still wasn't creating the final product on offense, but what he was bringing to the team on defense with his recovery speed was, was became, made him, you know, impossible to bench him. And then the offense came, and then obviously in the playoffs he became the monster. So Teal really has just taken to that role and adapted to the point where he's getting, he's figuring out the spacing. He knows when to stay wide, when to go to the byline, when to cut inside, how to combine. Um, he's, you know, scoring goals now from the wing too, which is, I mean, if he's going to stay this dangerous from out there, you know, you have a situation kind of like Kai Kamara in uh, Kansas City a couple of years ago where he's probably the team's most lethal offensive threat and he's floating in from the outside. It, it creates a different level of danger that can be difficult for defenses to work with. Um, so Teal really has dove in headfirst, and I wouldn't ever want to mess with him at that position. Juan, I think, is still a better striker. He's still a better number nine. He's still better up front, even as a lone striker or playing off somebody else. Um, he is play back to goal is miles ahead of anybody else within this team. And I'm not saying that's not Charlie Davies just played excellently, but that's just not Charlie's game. Charlie manages to play bigger than himself right now, but as he's just not really a target guy. Juan can play that, and he's also skillful enough that he can play, he can be a scoring threat and a running threat at the same time. He really is kind of the complete package as a number nine. And playing out on the wing, you highlight the stuff that he loves to do, but I don't know if necessarily you highlight what he's best at. He's adapting, and he's playing well. And I, I can't take that away from him, but I still think back to 2013 when he was the lone striker. And, yes, he was allowed to combine and drift out with Diego Fernandez and kind of switch positions when, when it suited him. But he did all of his damage following the lone furrow. And, you know, it's 
it's no secret that he's doing less damage now. He's not really getting the opportunity to do that. But that doesn't mean he's not dangerous. It doesn't mean he's not good at it. He's playing very well in the wing. He's dangerous. He's still creating combined. Cutting inside, there's few guys who are better finishers. So, I mean, he, he, he's adapting to it, but I think not the same way that Teal did. Teal did Teal took it like a fish to water. Juan is having a little bit more trouble, I think. How, is the, how have teams tried to defend New England uh, with their, you know, they can hit you so many ways. I mean, they, they have the strikers, they have the wings coming in, they've got guys that can get up the, the, the width of the field and, and put in some lethal crosses. they got set-piece uh, danger. Uh, we've now discovered that Tierney has a right foot that he can score with. Um, how, are, how are teams sort of uh, setting up to try to defend against the, the New England attack, and why are they not successful? Well, I mean, on a day when the attack is clicking completely, um, you know, and everybody's firing all cylinders and the passing is clean, I mean, they, you know, teams can kick us, I guess. That's pretty much as, as good as it's going to get. Uh, but in most, what teams have been doing in the past is you try to neutralize Lee Wynn and you try to neutral, you try to cover uh, and, and close down Chris Tierney. And if you could do those two things, you could effectively destroy any chance the Revs have scoring. Clog up the middle, and any time Chris Tierney gets down the left, make sure somebody's on him and play overplaying his left foot. That still is not necessarily, you know, a bad idea. Uh, Lee Wynn is still the guy, the playmaker, the guy who makes the team tick. He's been playing very well this year, not up to his standards, but, you know, he's still, if you don't pay that kind of attention to him, he will punish you. And now that he's going to have Jermaine Jones coming back in and backing up in midfield again, probably, uh, that's, you know, his game is going to improve because that's definitely helpful for Lee. Um, mm. And, you know, but Chris used to be the only wide threat. So if you took him away, you couldn't get wide. You could you could cover Lee. If you take him away, you try to isolate Lee and then clog the middle because the Rebs would just try to play through the middle and they don't they wouldn't get wide. They wouldn't have any other width. Couldn't figure out how to get around it and you could basically bog a game down and catch him on the break. Um, the real key to to that not necessarily being a viable option anymore is then London Woodbury of all people. Uh, he started the last three games at right back and kind of out of nowhere, he's suddenly become the best right-back crossing option the Revs have had in a decade. Um, and he got the assist last week on uh, Charlie Davies' goal. Now all of a sudden you have to respect the right side, too, and it comes to a point where you really have to pick your poison. Do you, you know, are you going to let... You're going to have to pay more attention to one or the other and hope somebody's having an off day. It's still not a bad idea to clog the middle against the Revs. They're still going to try to create in the middle. They're still going to drift that way the... You know, Peel and Warner both going to pinch inside. He's going to press up, and there's going to be four players, including Charlie Davies, in that middle that are going to be they're going to bunch themselves up. Mm-hmm. But with Jones in the midfield, he'll encourage them to spread it, and with two flank options, it's not going to be as effective anymore. But so, would you say the, the would you, would, Steve? Would you say the the big matchup then of the game would probably be a Moby Akugo against League Win? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be your Alobia Kugel against Lee Wynn and Aurelian Collin against uh, Charlie Davies. Uh, so, because oh, go ahead. Sorry. It, no, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's Lee being able to pick his passes and create and, and, and spring the counter is so key to this team when they're playing at their best. And Charlie has been nearly unplayable for the last three weeks. So if Aurelian Collin uh, or if anybody in Orlando defense can neutralize him, it's going to be big. It's going to be tough to do. Well, I have to. I have to say, I think London Woodbury is the most British name possible. 
Like, I don't think you can get the least, the least British looking person I ever remember. Right. Totally, totally <laughs> American. So not no connection at all, but it's just truly the most British name of all time. But I, to give some hope to Orlando fans, because admittedly this matchup doesn't look great. New England's on fire right now and really a talented squad. <laughs> Uh, I've noticed you're not a tall team now. Um, you have, I think, Andrew Farrell, one of your center backs, is, what, 5'10", 5'11". Um, the midfielders are short as well. Do you see any danger of some of Orlando's tall players, or Aurelian Collin, getting in and scoring on a set piece at some point? Yeah. You're gonna, if, if, if you're worried about being able to break down the defense or whatever, nicking a goal on a set piece isn't something that you're necessarily going to struggle with. Uh Andrew Farrell has hops, he can jump, but Andrew, a lot of times, the way he plays the game, because he, he's so aggressive, he'll end up in a position where he's backpedaling and trying to get height that way. And I've seen, you know, O'Brien Martins just schooled him from a header perspective against Seattle on the first game of the season. And now Andrew hasn't been beat that bad since, but uh, he, you've seen it. And that's just Farrell. I mean, there's height in this team. That's the thing. It's deceptive. If you look at Andrew Fallon, he's been the face of the defense so far, and yeah, he's not that tall, and he, he can jump, but he's not really, he's not, you don't think of him as great in the air. But his normal defensive partner is Jose Gonzalez. Over six feet tall, can jump, you know, great positioning sense, he's very good in the air. Chris Tierney is 6'1", I think he's my height, maybe a little bit taller than me. London Woodbury is taller than I am, I'm six feet tall, London Woodbury is probably 6'2". Um, Jermaine Jones in the midfield, about six feet tall, or close to it. Uh, Andy Dorman playing a lot of time in the midfield. He's about six one. Uh, Teal Bunbury, uh, Juan Agudelo. You know these guys are not small, and they can match up with tall players. We can't. The Revs can neutralize tall threats, um, but there are weaknesses there. Some of those tall players aren't natural defenders. They will lose markers on set pieces, and mm-hmm. Andrew sometimes will you know overplay something, or he'll end up backpedaling, or something along those lines, and that's. Someone like Aurelian Collin, who is just a master in the air, who can score goals that way, uh, it could have some success. It is, it's definitely something that the Revs should be worried about. And um, if I'm an Orlando fan, I'm thinking that any time there's a corner or a dangerous free kick, I'm thinking put it on, put it at Aurelian Collin's head because at some point or another he'll probably score. Well, we're, we we just saw two two goals off corners uh, in the friendly last week, so that's uh, that's looking like our best option right now because. <laughs> The team has one goal in four home games in MLS play, and that came on a, a free kick from Kaká that was deflected by the wall. Um, nothing in the run of play so far. So, uh, yeah, we we're, we might have to just get a whole bunch of corners. That might be the thing. But Steve, before we let you get out of here, we've talked a lot about what you know we're afraid of with New England. What what are New England fans saying about this Orlando team, and, and what uh, who are the people they're most concerned with uh, in terms of the game on Friday? Well, clearly everyone's concerned with Kakao. I mean, you can't count him out. There, there's, even at his advanced, uh, you could not even really that advanced, but you could say advanced age, um, even at where he is right now, there are problems. He'll, he'll go in, he can go into gears that players in this, other players in this league just have never seen before. You know, and he can, he can beat you in so many different ways, even without that game-breaking speed that he used to have in his arsenal. And, it's that vision, that technique, that ability on the ball, that, you know, ability to look at a high-pressing team that would normally pluck the ball off off of a guy's feet at the center line and just say, no, you won't get the ball today, and somehow keep it. You know, Kaká can do that, and that kind of screws with the with the Revolution game plan of 
high press, keeping the ball in the opposing half. Um, so everyone's kind of worried about him because he, I mean, he can do he can do everything from here for that team. I'm going to tell him you said advanced age. By the way, that's bulletin board material right there. That's going to get him fired <laughs> up for the for the match on Friday. Like I said, it's a kind of advanced, but advanced for a soccer player, not not even really that old. He's just been been so good for so long, and you think that he's old. Um, but and then uh, I would be worried a little bit myself, uh, and this is me personally. If I'm looking at that team, Aurelian Collins, he's a good defender. Uh, he tackles hard. He's not afraid to mix it up. And uh, yeah, he's great in the air. And on set pieces, he will punish you if you can get good deliveries. And well, Kakai are going to get good deliveries. Uh, also, probably looking at that team, Brett Shea. Um, speed on the left, he'll be attacking Teal Bumber, uh, not Teal Bumber, excuse me, he'll be attacking, um, London Woodbury. And London Woodbury is a defender first. He was a, he's going to the center back, so his positioning should be sound. He's not slow, but Breck Shea is fast. Breck Shea has technique. Breck Shea is tall. He's physical. He's got all the tools. And it's going to be his probably London's first real serious test in terms of the talent he's going to be looking at in front of him. So I, I, I'd be, if you're going to get some love against the against the Rebs and the run of play, you're probably going to get it that way, and I'd be a little worried about it. Um, and this is a lot of team speed for Orlando. And speed can be rough on this team. You know, London has speed, but Chris Tierney's not known for it. So if you're going to try to pin him back and not let him get crosses in, having a fast right winger isn't really a bad idea. And I know Kevin Molino's out, um, but Orlando has no lack of speed options on top. So that one, that worries me a little bit too. Uh, it can be difficult for this defense sometimes to deal with game breaking speed, as it can for any defense. But the Revs in particular um, have struggled in the past. So I'd be worried about Kaká's vision, Kaká's just magic, and also the speed and technique of the wings, um, kind of disrupting the game plan for the Revs. All right, well, we'll see how it plays out on Friday night. Steve Store, managing editor of the Bent Musket, our sister blog over on SB Nation. Thanks so much for being with us on the Mainland Podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a lot of fun. we got a special guest this week on the Mainland Podcast. Joining us from your Orlando City Lions, it's uh, goalkeeper Earl Edwards, Jr. Earl, thanks for being with the podcast. Yeah, of course. No problem. So the first thing I want to do is I want to ask you about something that just happened recently because it's fresh in my mind, and I didn't get to, a chance to talk to you about it after the game. Coaches' press conferences lasted just a little too long, but uh, you're already probably out looking for a place to see the Pacquiao-Mayweather fight. But uh, I wanted to, to ask you about the penalty save um, Saturday night against Pancha Preta and um, – you know, kind of walk me through what happened and what you thought would happen. Obviously, you you picked the right direction, and and then maybe a little bit about how it seemed to pick the team up a little bit afterwards. Um, yeah, I mean penalties in general. It's um, uh, obviously the keepers not in the doesn't have the best odds, but um, I think penalties are something I've I've seen as a strength of mine. Um, Unfortunately, I was able to make the save and read the guy going going to my right. Uh, it took a while to get to the ball, and I knew he was kind of waiting for me to go one way or the other. So I held my ground, and um, luckily, like I said, went the right way. I was able to make the save, and um, Connor Donovan did a hell of a job coming in and cleaning up uh, the rebound to secure the save. So um, yeah, it was it was a big moment for the team um, in general. I, 
wished I hadn't given up the PK in the first place, but to make up for it, um, I definitely think uh, helped us and gave us a little bit of momentum and kept us in the game. Yeah, well, to be fair, I'd call that a pretty questionable PK call to begin with. I'm sure you've seen the replay. It looked like he had a quite a few steps there to try and avoid you. But uh, not to give away any secrets, but I was curious, did you guess to your right from the beginning, or did you see something in his runoff that tipped you off to go that way? Um, a little bit of both. I, I, I felt like he might go to my right, and then um, his approach, um, I think, hinted at that as well. So I just stayed with my instinct and just had to get the timing right. Well, we're uh, we're real glad you made that stop. It ended up being uh, the difference between a, a draw and a victory in the end, and uh, it was nice to see the the Lions get a home victory in the, in front of the Citrus Bowl faithful. Um, Earl, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the 2015 MLS Super Draft. Most people uh, that are drafted after the first round, it, it, it's not a real positive, successful record uh, for making the club. But you not only made the club, but have have become like right there behind Donovan Ricketts and a very important part of the club already. Um, what were your thoughts going into draft? Did you did you kind of think maybe, well, um, maybe I can catch on in, in the USL, maybe work my way up if things don't go well with the club, or did you did you just enter camp with the mindset that there's no way that I'm not making this club? Um, well, going into the draft, uh, I had. Um I was pretty open to anything. If a team wanted to sign me and loan me out, um, I was open to that. If I could sign and stick on with the first team and compete for um, a number two or number one spot, I was obviously more than happy to do that. But um, as I ended up at Orlando, um, things were kind of open. It was an open competition, so I just did my my best to put myself in the best uh, position uh, possible. And um, luckily... um, I ended up in the situation I am now, playing behind Ricketts and um, being in the 18 for each game and getting to travel and having that experience as a young keeper is, um, is a blessing. And I'm happy I have people like Ricketts and Tally Hall to, to learn from and continue to push me on a daily basis. And, um, yeah, I'm fortunate as a rookie to be in the situation that I'm, that I'm in. Yeah, I think it's it's worth pointing out to people who maybe you know haven't, haven't played a ton of soccer themselves that being a backup keeper is a hard job because you have to be mentally ready every single match, in and out, right? Even though there's a really good chance you're not going to play, but you never know and you have to be ready to go in. Could you talk about, you know, what do you do? How do you keep yourself at 100% preparedness just to be ready if anything does happen? Um, I think, personally, for me, the the college game helped me with that. So I went into UCLA and sat for my first uh, two years uh, behind Brian Rose with Galaxy Now, and I... um, uh, that was a huge learning experience for me, and I've always said um, I stayed at UCLA for another three years after that, and I've always said to people that ask me about my college experience, is that something that I'll, I'll take with me into the future? I know as a rookie and a young goalkeeper, it's going to be hard to be um, the starting guy right away, nearly impossible, really. So um, to learn how to be the backup as I did at UCLA, I think that was a huge um, a learning learning experience for me and something that I've carried on to uh, my professional career and um, something I've dealt with before in the past. So I'm glad I had that experience and it's something that um, I know to deal with and um, continuing to apply what I learned there um, at the professional level. Earl, I know that um, with Tally Hall getting ready to come back soon from his injury, uh, things are going to start getting a little bit more crowded in the in Orlando City Nets. Um, 
have there been discussions on what might happen when when Tally comes back and whether there might be a loan opportunity for somebody, whether it would be you or Josh or um, you know or, or even Donovan? Uh, have there been those kinds of discussions? And you know what can you tell us about um, you know what might happen when Tally comes back? Yeah, I, I'm, I, they haven't. There hasn't been a ton of open discussion about it. Um, uh, as you know, Tally and, and Ricketts are two extremely established goalkeepers in the league. So um, for me, I'm just gonna have to keep my head down and keep doing what I'm doing. If it works out that I can remain the number two, that's great. If um, I get moved down the ranks and have to go on loan or whatever else I have to do, I'm willing to do that too. And um, my job doesn't change. I got to I keep the same focus, same work ethic, and whatever happens, happens. And um, to, to straight answer your question, there hasn't been much discussion about it um, at all. So um, it seems that they're keeping it uh, pretty open, and um, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. So uh, as far as you know, playing playing keeper, you're sort of generally in a leadership role on the team. But obviously, you're a pretty young guy. You're a rookie. I think you're you're 23 now. Um, but you were, for those who don't know, I think you were a captain for your last three years at UCLA, if that's correct, you can correct me, but how do you, how do you lead the team? How do you lead the guys on the field when you're just a rookie, you know, when you're the young guy, is that difficult for you? Um, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say difficult. It's just a different way of, uh, of leadership. So, um, being a young guy, it's not so much vocal and, um, standing out in the sense of, uh, like I said, being vocal or, or uh, telling guys what to do so much, but it's more uh, by example, by work ethic, um, keeping your head down and just doing what you're, what you're supposed to do. Um, and for me as a keeper, obviously I have to be vocal on the field in terms of putting guys in positions they need to be in. And um, I think that uh, as that comes, guys will trust me more. And uh, as I continue to, like I said, do my job, keep my head down, make saves and, keep the ball to the goal, guys will respect me more and more. But in terms of being a leader, I think it's, um, at this point as a young guy, more by um, example as opposed to uh, the more vocal leader. Um, I could be on and off the field at UCLA. It's a different experience. I mean, does that feel like um, does that feel weird when you're in like practice and you have to give like a defensive command to like Breck Shea or somebody or Aurelian Collin? You know, these guys you probably were watching when you were in high school and, and definitely college and stuff. Is that like a weird feeling? Um, I, I'm actually, it's not, it's not, um, extremely weird for me. Um, I was fortunate enough to be with some OVN bracket. We overlapped in residency, so I'm very close to those guys, which has made the transition easy. Um, Eric Avila and I played, um, nomads together, uh, growing up. So, so there's some guys on the team I've known for a long time and that makes it more comfortable. And fortunately, um, also at UCLA, my coaches set me up training with multiple different MLS teams throughout my last two years of school and, um, I got comfortable with the environment, so it's not something that's been um, an extreme jump for me, but it is. I understand what you're saying. It could be a little intimidating, um, barking out orders to guys that have played over in England or guys that are uh, established all-stars in the league. Um, but, no, it's something I'm, uh, I'm comfortable, comfortable with and um, I'm enjoying. Well, it's interesting you, that you mentioned that you knew some of the guys coming in because – that was going to be my, sort of my qu- next question was going to be if you thought it helped you get comfortable quicker coming in with a, a, a young team with a lot of young guys and you you didn't have quite so many uh, big personalities and, and veterans um, on the team like like you might have coming on uh, getting drafted by an ex- established team rather than an expansion team. 
Um, what was it like coming in with a bunch of guys that you're actually older than? Um, yeah, I mean, that was also coming out of, like I said, I was at UCLA five years. So I, was, I was used to being an old guy. and um, So in that sense, having a bunch of young guys in the locker room, it's great that um, we do have um, a decent amount of veterans. It's, it's a good mix of, of age throughout the group. And um, it's nice to have young guys, and um, it's fun to – uh, see them grow and um, see myself grow along with the older guys and um, it's cool to see how we all uh, make it work having multiple 19 year olds in the group along with up to Ricketts who's uh, 37 so it's cool to see how um, uh, there is no real hierarchy on our team it's nice to see in the locker room everyone gets along and um, it's a, really a fresh start being an expansion team so everyone um, obviously the older established guys um, demand more respect, but um, it's nice to see that there's no guys that um, stand stand out above others and help the young guys along. So no no rookie hazing. You don't have to bring uh, bring Donovan lunch every day or anything. <laughs> uh, nothing nothing to that uh, of that sort. So I got I got I got to keep it a hundred question for you on this one. In practice, mm-hmm. other than Kaká, who has the best shot on the team? Uh, best shot um, in terms of consistently finishing or because if we're going power, Carlos Rivas um, absolutely destroys the ball. Sometimes it's frustrating as a, as a keeper when a guy's doing that from seven yards out. Right, um, right, right. <laughs> uh, but pure finisher, and I uh, hope he doesn't hear this because he'll be pretty excited, but when he gets in front of goal, uh, Breck Shea is pretty good. Okay, good to know. <laughs> so, um, Earl, before we let you go, uh, just one final question. I wanted to ask you what you so far have learned from Donovan Ricketts, a guy with a lot of experience, and, and what have you learned so far from Tally Hall? What have those guys sort of imparted upon you here early in your career? Um, I, I think uh, Ricketts has had a huge influence on me. Uh, I was fortunate enough to train with him. I came out of residency but and took a one-year quarter off. At UCLA, I went and trained with Galaxy for the preseason. I was 17 years old when uh, Ricketts was there. Um, got to train with him again last summer in Portland. So I've known Ricketts um, going on six years now, and um, we've kept in touch. And since I've gotten here, he's been nothing but a huge help for me. And I think he enjoys um, having a younger guy he can take under his wing, and he's uh, imparted a lot of wisdom and um, knowledge of the game for me, and he's willing to help me, so it's great that I can go to him with questions or uh, uh, just things about the game and life, whatever it is, and being an older guy, he's, he's always willing to help. So um, the biggest thing I think I've taken from him is that no matter what, there's highs and lows throughout the game, so you really got to stay level-headed. And uh, as uh, old as that, that saying uh, sounds, it's uh, something that um, – he lives, and it's it's cool to see in person that it's uh, someone that takes that seriously, regardless of um, how well he's playing or if you think he had a terrible game. He's uh, he's always on the same same level, uh, same personality, um, never too high, never too low. So it's cool to see that up front, um, especially with the situation I'm in. Um, young guy, maybe not going to get a lot of playing time. Maybe I will. You know, so keep that level head and the same work ethic is uh, something that he's uh, helping me stay focused on. Well, before we let you go, we got to get a prediction. You guys have first place, uh, first place New England coming to town Friday night here for your next uh, MLS league match. What do you got? Can the Lions pull off a win this weekend? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely think we're capable. We um, 
we've had some great performances. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've just struggled to score a bit, but I think um, uh, our, our play has spoken for itself, and hopefully um, we can open open things up and get some more goals at home and carry uh, the momentum off of this friendly into this game. Um, obviously, we respect what, respect what uh, New England has done this far, and we won't um, underestimate, underestimate them by any means. So um, it'll be a good one, and we're ready to go. All right, sounds good. Earl Edwards Jr., Orlando City goalkeeper, thanks so much for being on the Mainland Podcast with us, and uh, we hope to have you on again soon. Yeah, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, we're just about ready to put the finishing touches on another magical Mainland Podcast. Uh, Really want to thank our guests tonight, uh, Earl Edwards Jr., of course, of our own Orlando City Lions, and Steve Storr from the Bent Musket. Really uh, a good show when you can uh, put some quality guests together like that. And, Andrew, you know, before we get out of here, we always got to do this thing where we we talk about the game and talk about what we think is going to happen and predict who's going to win and that kind of thing. And we're inevitably wrong in the worst possible way. Sure, yeah. So (laughs) are are we gun-shy yet? Are we going to try to do this again this week? I, I... I mean, I hope maybe eventually I'll get it right. It feels like it's uh, <laughs> the odds of just luckily getting it right at some point have to happen. But I, I will contend, and I've said this before, I think Orlando City has been unpredictable. That, I mean, what what team is this bad at home and goes out and wins matches on the road consistently, you know? We we beat really good teams and, and lose to bad teams sometimes. It's, it, it's not so much that our predictions are that awful. I think the team is just totally unpredictable and so far this year so to give us a little bit of credit at least so it's not us it's them exactly it's totally that's, them right that's what we're I, doing what we're supposed to do and we're doing everything right and they're screwing it up right that's what all of my all of my exes <laughs> have told me it's not them it's me so <laughs> <laughs> awesome okay well um why don't you go first? Uh, I know what I have in mind, and you're probably going to say the same thing, and then I'll look stupid, and I'll, or, or I'll have to change it. But uh, go ahead and tell tell me what you think is going to happen on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you know, it's tough to predict a win here. You want to come out and uh, and and say the Lions are going to win every match, but there's somewhere you have to be realistic. And realistically, New England is very very hot right now, and they're just they're a really good team to begin with. They haven't lost in their last seven matches. Everyone was pretty much predicting them to win the East to begin the year anyway. Uh, incredible attacking talent. Main Jones running things from the midfield. Just a really great all-around team. Probably the best in the East right now and probably will be at the end of the year. Uh, so I, I think we're going to have a hard time beating them. I think they might come into the Citrus Bowl and beat us, you know, 2-0, 2-1, I think. Yeah, it's you know it's kind of hard to argue with. There's so many things going on with Orlando City right now. You got Molino's injury that they've got to deal with. You've got Breck Shea moving up probably to play the midfield this week for the first time. Bowden's going to be playing left back against a very very difficult attack. So it you know also all signs point to really needing an outstanding effort from the defense and the goalkeeper. And the last couple of home games. Uh, or the last two games combined, Orlando City has lost 5-0. I mean, look at Toronto and Columbus. Now, Columbus, obviously, 10-man, so it's kind of hard to deal with that. But, uh, you know, as as much pressure as Columbus can put on you, 
it's nothing compared to what New England's offense can do. So, I mean, it's going to be really, really tough. I'm going to – it's really hard to predict goals for Orlando City or, or to, to say they're going to score right, when they have right. proven time and time again that they are, are not scoring at home. Uh, but I think maybe they take a little bit of confidence out of that friendly victory and getting three goals in that game. Maybe they scratch for a goal. But I, I do see this as a loss, and it might be a two or three to one loss. Um, I think on uh, the Bent Muskets uh, Q and A exchange, I think I optimistically said maybe it's going to be a one one draw. But that's I think a little optimistic uh, to to think we can hold New England uh, New England's offense down with a, a back line featuring uh, somebody that's only playing their second MLS game. And especially since um, the last couple of games have been a little bit tricky back there. And it's not just the, the back four responsible for that. I think I think the communication with the defensive midfield the last two games has not been as good as it had been previously. So maybe they can get that cleaned up. I hope they can because early on uh, it was working pretty good. But, you know, now they've got several games on tape that people can look at. And, you know, this is a league of adjustments. And, you know, if Orlando City's back line looked really good the first few weeks, Maybe other teams are starting to figure them out a little bit. So um, maybe the next adjustment needs to be made by Orlando City. Hopefully it'll be Friday, uh, but I am not feeling particularly good about this game. Yeah, well, you know, like I say, with our track record, um, with all, even with all this adversity, everything pointing to a really tough game and prob- you know, probable loss for Orlando City, this will be the game that they come out and miraculously score you know, three or four goals at home and something and, and shock everyone. <laughs> but if, if we're trying to make the legitimate predictions here as, as soccer bloggers, you've you got to say it doesn't look promising. Yeah. Now, we're not haters, so don't go there. <laughs> we're not hating on the team because we're predicting what we think might happen. Right. We're just we're just trying to give you our honest assessment as I don't know not really experts but maybe students of the game. Let's call us that. Sure, that's, that's probably still generous, but I'll take it. <laughs> students are always learning, so <laughs> yeah. that's that's the thing about students is that they're they're not graduates; they're students, and they're still learning. So uh, you know, if we're not quite correct a hundred percent, then then so be it. But I mean, we gotta kind of got to go with our guts here, and that's what our guts are telling us. We're not hating. Uh, you know, that's just the way it is. So we'll see what happens Friday night, Andrew. And I'm looking forward to it because, you know, if nothing else, got a lot of world-class players going to be on the, the Citrus Bowl turf on Friday night. And of course, um, you know, they're, they're used to playing in a, you know, a large football stadium. So it probably won't be a whole lot different for them. Uh, but the atmosphere was really, really good last week, especially when, Orlando City scored uh, a couple of goals, and so uh, I'm I'm excited. Can't wait to see what happens. Sure, it should be a, you know an exciting match. I think that's a lot of talent on the field, like you said. All right, so we're going to call it a podcast, folks. That does it for episode 12. We will uh, be back next week to recap all of the action from New England and Orlando City, and uh, we'll look ahead. Who the heck do we have next? I don't even I haven't even looked that far ahead. We, is it Columbus again? Gosh, I can't remember either. We should really be on top of this. Ah, uh, we should. And I know we got the Galaxy coming up, too, which is a, another, uh, that'll be a big game as well. So, uh, But anyway, by uh, the, the time we record next week, we'll have figured it out. And <laughs> <laughs> one, one can only hope. Yeah, so uh, that's it for this uh, edition. Uh, on behalf of uh, Andrew Marcinko, uh, editor over here at uh, TheMainland.com, I am Michael Citro, managing editor, saying, Go City! <laughs>